It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, May 24th, 2017. We'll be doing our light episode today. And a little bit of a heads up, probably a light episode on Friday also. But we'll talk about that on Friday. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is a program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's weird how that often works out. And over again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine and teaching that people are being fed is far from what God's Word says, like, at all. Yeah, it's just crazy what's going on out there. Kind of case in point, there are a group of pastors out there who, you know, kind of bend the knee every time there's a, there's some kind of a hit piece documentary put out there against Christianity, and they kind of end up caving and going liberal and, come, you know, trying to find some kind of, you know, way to, you know, save their academic face while... You're still maintaining the, the pulpit, yeah. And uh, the, recently, during uh, during the, the week leading up to uh, Easter, uh, PBS put out a documentary uh, you know, that was in part the work of Simka Yakabovich, uh, the the last days of Jesus documentary. Maybe you watched it, yeah. Well, yeah, I watched it and uh, even commented on, in my Sunday school class the next week. Uh, on it. Yeah, no joke. And so what we're going to do today, in, on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I'm going to uh, debunk the the claims from the the Last Days of Jesus documentary that uh, was recently put out by uh, PBS. So, yeah, and the reason for this is quite simple, because number one, it's a hit piece that's just chock full of lies. It's not even remotely true. And uh, and there are a lot of people who have their faith shaken by such documentaries, and they need not have that be the case. And uh, and so uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. And unfortunately, some of those people who have their sh- their faith rattled by such things also turn out to be pastors, and oftentimes this is the thing that kind of unbuckles them from biblical Christianity and sends them careening into <clears throat> false doctrine and weird, you know, compromises when it comes to the faith. You know, case in point, look at Rob Bell. So, uh, without any further ado, let's get to it. Our lesson today will be debunking the uh, again the documentary, "The Last Days of Jesus." All right, let's open with prayer, and then we will get into our topic for today. Lord Jesus, again, as we open up your word and we consider the veracity and the reliability of your New Testament, we ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we may be able to know what the truth is, to understand what the evidence points to, 
so that we may have confidence in your written word, so that our faith may not be stolen from us in days such as these. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. By way of a little bit of a confession, on Wednesday during our midweek gathering uh, for Lent, I sat at the ladies' table. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the absolution, Roger. At the ladies' table, um, one of our members informed me that on Monday night on PBS, there was a documentary, The Last Days of Jesus. And she was telling me, along with another of our members, that um, this was an awful documentary that basically seemed to have as its whole existence the purpose of basically saying what you think you know about Jesus. That's not really how it went down. And so I uh, went on to the PBS website and found the documentary in question, watched it twice. (laughs) (laughs) And all I can say is this is a train wreck. Now, I want to remind you all that the world is hostile towards Jesus. They don't really like him. If If you ever hear an unbeliever say, well, we like Jesus, but we don't really like Christians. They're lying. Scripture says that those who are dead in trespasses and sins are actually hostile towards God. And this is an example of this. Um, And so every year, it seems to happen like clockwork. At Easter time, also sometimes at Christmas, out come the hit piece documentaries. And they're always marketed in such a way that Christians are interested in watching them because They think that this is going to be a documentary that somehow vindicates the Bible or vindicates Jesus or will help us see how archaeology is verifying what we see in Scripture, to which I would say, yeah, that's not the point of these documentaries. You know, so the best way I could put it is is that the, the movie that's out, The Case for Christ, good. Very good. Lee Strobel has done a fine job of laying out a basic apologetic argument demonstrating that the evidence for the veracity of who Christ is and what he's done for us, that this is all historically verifiable. No problem with that. But when you get something on like PBS, the History Channel, you know, CNN, things like this, their agenda, I don't know if you've noticed this, pagans do what pagans do because pagans are what pagans are. And so pagans don't really seem to have this burning desire to actually go out and you know, tell the world that Jesus died for their sins and stuff. Instead, pagans are hostile towards God and they really cannot stand the message of who he is, what he's done, and that salvation is found in no one else except for him. And so when you look at a lot of these documentaries, these are hit piece documentaries. Now, I would note something here. One of the fellows who's prominently featured in this documentary is a fellow who I would liken to Saul of Tarsus, not the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion. And the fellow's name is Simka Yakabovich. Now, you may, have, you may be familiar with him because 10 years ago, he's the guy who came out with that documentary, uh, you know, kind of co-produced with James Cameron called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And Simka Yakabovich, his name actually looks like it's pronounced Simka Yakabovici, uh, but it's not. It's, it's Hebrew, not Italian. And so it's Simka Yakabovich. And this fellow, the best way I could describe him is he hates, he loathes Jesus. 
and he has made it his life mission to find a way to utterly discredit Jesus so that people will stop saying that he's the Jewish Messiah. That's the only way I can describe this fellow, and I have followed his career for the better part of a decade now. So I would say you've got to keep in mind, if you, if you see this, the, if you see Simka Yakubovich associated with any documentary archaeologically, he's got a major axe to grind, and he is no friend of Christ. And so as I watched the documentary, and this is kind of the important thing, is, is what they're doing is they're trying to offer an alternative interpretation to the last week of Jesus' life which for us, you know, liturgically began today with Palm Sunday. And so the idea is Jesus comes into Jerusalem. There's a crowd of people who are welcoming into Jerusalem. They grab palm branches. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus comes in. And literally, less than a week later, they're shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And so now you've got a narrative that makes this crowd look like they're, well, schizophrenic. But they don't do any work to kind of carefully exegete any of these texts. And so instead, they've come up with an alternative narrative. And the alternative narrative takes us to imperial Rome, who was the emperor while Jesus was on trial. Do any of you know? Answer, Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar is the one who is emperor of Rome at this time. But if you know the history of Tiberius Caesar, which they give us a lot of in this documentary. You know this, that, well, to put it bluntly and not politely, Tiberius was a bit of a pervert. And although he was emperor of Rome, he spent quite a lot of time in private seclusion in a seaside resort engaging in his perversions. I'll just put it politely. There's no other way to describe this. So while he's busy doing that, the question comes up, who's running the empire while he's otherwise occupied? Answer, a fellow by the name of Lucius Sejanus. You probably have never heard of Lucius Sejanus. Lucius Sejanus was quite the fellow. He was extremely ambitious. He was originally the head of the Praetorian Guard. So he's a Roman soldier, head of the Praetorian Guard, which is like the elite bodyguard group in charge of guarding Caesar. So you think of him as like the head of the secret service, something like that, right? And he eventually becomes the the guy who's running the empire on behalf of Tiberius. That makes sense? Now, since he was already running the empire, questions kind of arose whether or not he would be the a good successor to Tiberius as the emperor when the emperor ultimately would pass on. And Sejanus, we find out from history, actually kind of helped because there was two other rivals that he had who could potentially be the next emperor. And Sejanus worked surreptitiously to cause very suspicious circumstances to arise that led to the death of these other two fellows. And it took a while for them to put all of the pieces together but while they were putting all the pieces together, remember, he's running the empire. Now, I was sitting there, what does this have to do with the death of Jesus? Well, the death of Jesus has everything to do with it, at least in their theory. It goes like this. In Judea, you've heard of Herod Antipas. You've heard of Herod. Herod's son, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. He wasn't permitted by imperial Rome to actually be the king of Judea like his father was. 
Instead, he was just a kind of a provincial governor, if you would. But he really, 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 really wanted to be the king of Judea like his father before him. But the emperor said, no, no. Not one emperor, but two emperors said, no way, Jose, we're not letting you do that, okay? including Tiberius. Well, while Tiberius was engaging in his adult activities, put it politely, and Sejanus is running the emperor, empire for him, Herod Antipas makes a trip all the way to Rome and makes a political alliance with Sejanus. And it looks like things are going his way. You're thinking, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, actually nothing. But this is how the conspiracy theory that they lay out in this documentary goes. And so the way it works is if you actually pay attention to the list of people who were connected to Jesus, we know that one of the fellows that was a follower of Jesus grew up in Herod Antipas' house. We know the scripture actually explicitly says this of this fellow. And so here's how the conspiracy, the new interpretation works. See, Jesus was in cahoots with Herod Antipas through the liaison of the guy who was one of his followers who grew up in his house. And Jesus' ministry was being bankrolled by Herod Antipas and some of the people who had clout in Judea. And so Jesus apparently had it out for the established priesthood. Jesus really was not in favor of and was radically opposed to the established priesthood in Jerusalem, just like his cousin, John the Baptist. And he's sitting there going, what? (laughs) This is their interpretation. I'm just trying to tell you. And so what happened is that when it came time, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he really didn't come in on Palm Sunday, a week before he was um, arrested, he came in six months earlier. But see, the gospel writers just left all that out to make it look like he'd only been there for a week. And what ended up happening is, is that when he arrived there, that happened to coincide with the, when the time when Tiberius became wise as to what Sejanus was up to and had him executed. And once word got to Herod Antipas and to Pilate that Sejanus had been executed, they became, well, cowardly, women-like. Oh, what are we going to do? And this explains what they ended up throwing Jesus under the bus because, yeah, you're sitting there going, where are they getting all of this? And you all just tell me where they're getting all of this? Think here. They're getting this all in here, their own heads. So they've concocted a conspiratorial very complex, political, almost soap opera-like explanation for what's going on with Jesus. And the reason for this is simple. They do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God in human flesh. They do not believe that he performed miracles. They do not believe that he walked on water. They do not believe that he was crucified for no reason, as an innocent person, and that he rose again bodily from the grave and that he's coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead. They don't believe any of that. In fact, this is part of a bigger project, if you would, that goes back a couple of centuries. Y'all ever heard of Albert Schweitzer? Albert Schweitzer was part of a group of very liberal theologians who were very critical of the New Testament. 
And the reason for this is that they bought into a philosophical worldview known as modernity. If you've read any of the modernistic philosophers like David Hume or other people like this, their general argument goes something like this. We live in a world that is actually quite rational. There's laws of nature. And so what is a miracle? A miracle miracle is the breaking of the laws of nature. And since the laws of nature cannot be broken, how do you know they can't be broken? Because we've never seen them broken. Therefore, Jesus couldn't have broken the laws of nature, and he really didn't perform miracles, and he really didn't rise from the dead. How do you know this again? Our logic, which is a big circle, by the way. Our circular logic. Okay, yeah, so let me kind of explain. So the idea then is, is that a whole bunch of Christian theologians literally, when these arguments came forward in history a couple hundred years ago, they bent the knee and said, Modernity, modernity you are Lord. We, we surrender. Okay, but they stayed in the church. They surrendered to modernity. They stayed in the church. And then they went and became professors in seminaries. And they they taught a whole generation of pastors, you can't trust the Bible. You can't believe that Jesus walked on water or any of this nonsense. And so they began this project, the quest to learn who the real historical Jesus is. Now, this documentary acknowledges something very interesting at the very beginning, near the very beginning of it. And they recognize that The only data we have about Jesus comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But they also acknowledge they can't deny that he's a historical figure because Roman historians talk about Jesus. So we know that historically he lived, but they don't believe that what we have in the Gospels is accurate, that this is somehow some kind of legendary account of the life of Jesus rather than an eyewitness account of Jesus. But they don't tell you that at the beginning of the documentary. They don't lay their cards out on the table until literally the last minutes of the documentary. Now, I want you to hear the last minutes of this documentary. We'll play it. Here we go. This new interpretation leaves us with a very different picture of Jesus' last days. I don't think we should think of Jesus as a marginal human being, a peasant running around the Galilee on his own, preaching about the kingdom of God. He's had connections to Herod Antipas's uh, chief of staff through his wife connections to the Pharisees, who are the teachers, connections to the Sadducees. He had influence and he had connections. But if Jesus was supported by a political plot hatched by two of the most powerful men in the Roman Empire, why is there absolutely no record of it in the Gospels? Because it didn't happen. The answer may well have something to do with when they were written they were written for. Because at the time the Gospels were composed, it was illegal to mention Sejanus' name anywhere in the Roman Empire. 
Tiberius's vengeance is not just against the person of Sejanus, but against his reputation. And he pronounces effectively a damnatio memoriae, a determination that the very memory of Sejanus will be erased from the public record. Any statue of him, any dedication in his honor, is to be struck down. So you're denying that the guy ever existed. mention of Sejanus was still dangerous decades after his death, the very time the Gospels were written. What many people don't realize about the Gospels is they're not contemporary eyewitness accounts of what happened. Lots of people have thought that they were. They're anonymous writings. We don't know who Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John happened to be. As we study them more, we realize, first of all, they're written 40, 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus. And the story they all describe is carefully crafted. You think of the Gospels as you would a politician trying to persuade you of a particular way of seeing things. Trump they involve wrote. a lot of choice in terms of what goes into them and what gets left out. But they're very much designed as recruitment literature. And if you've got recruitment literature, you've got to be careful you don't alienate people. And the one group the gospel writers had to be very careful not to offend were the Romans. In an environment where there are serious consequences for being a Christian, that you could be um, hauled in front of Roman authorities and all sorts of terrible things would happen to you, you might want to be a bit careful about your portrayal of the Romans. It's not surprising then that if Sejanus did have a part to play in the last days of Jesus, the gospel writers chose to leave behind. Yeah, that's right. The gospel writers for, failed to mention Sejanus because, you know, he was illegal. So do they have any kind of proof of their theory? Oh, this is utter conjecture. I mean, this is probably... They, no... they, they openly recognize that this is a radical new interpretation. I would say that, wow, I believe that that Jesus was actually Elvis, because remember, Elvis never really died. He was beamed up by the mothership. And so, and once he was beamed up to the mothership, I'm sure that the aliens made, you know, basically put the spirit of Elvis in Jesus. And so that, I think, is a very good interpretation of explaining what really what happened in the Gospels. It all makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, that's it. They're purposely accusing the gospel writers of omitting important, relevant political information that would have helped us to understand who Jesus is. And in their depiction of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is alone. He's by himself. He is not crucified between two uh, two people. There's not a crowd there at the cross. And well, no, there were nails. There, there were nails. There were nails in his hands. They show the. Yeah, but they, they, they have a different way of crucifying him, which that's a whole other story. But um, the issue here is, is that 
they basically 2,000 years after the fact are saying they have a better explanation about what, who Jesus is and what he did than the people who wrote the Gospels. And how do they get away with this? Well, we don't believe the Gospels are really eyewitness testimony. How long were they written after Jesus' death? 60, 70 years after the death of Jesus. All right, who, who wrote these things then would be kind of the question. Now, should we as Christians go, oh, no, oh, I can't trust my Bible. Oh, oh this is terrible. I'm, I, I, I'm not going to go to Kongsfinger anymore. You know, <laughs> you know. This, is, this is absurd on its face. And it totally ignores important data in the Gospels themselves. Is it true? Do you think it's true that the Gospels were not written by the eyewitnesses? Now, by the way, we have four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Of those Gospels, how many of them do we know for sure are written by an eyewitness? Two. Matthew... And John. Now, what about Mark? We think he may have been an eyewitness, but we're not sure. We do know that Mark's gospel are the preaching notes of the apostle Peter. This we know. And modern scholars seem to think that Mark was written first, which is fascinating because we actually have fragments of the gospel of Mark that are from the first century. Just want to let you know that. But according to the early church, and I mean the earliest Christians, you know who they say wrote first? It was Matthew. The church fathers say Matthew wrote first and that he originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew. And then it was translated. This is what the church fathers tell us. Now, what about that gospel that we call Luke? What about it? What does it say about itself? Okay, let's take a look. Luke chapter 1, listen to this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That opening paragraph makes it very clear where this gospel comes from. Luke, who is a convert to Christianity, he interviewed the eyewitnesses and composed his gospel accordingly. And you'll notice that Luke's gospel gives us what was going on inside of the heart and mind of Mary when the angel appeared to her of when Jesus was born, and about Zechariah, which means there's only one person who was alive at that time who could have given that information to Luke, and that's Mary herself. And so the Gospel of Luke is a unique document because it specifically notes the fact that the purpose of this was to help Theophilus, which is a wonderful name because it can also be used for us. Theophilus in Greek means lover of God. This is written to you as well. Are you not a lover of God? And this was compiled via the eyewitness testimony. Straight up. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition 
or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's debunking of the uh, Last Days of Jesus documentary. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Non-fat decaf mocha with no whipped cream, two pumps of chocolate, and diet soy milk for Tiffany. Oh, actually, it's just Tiff. Oh, uh, sorry, uh, Tiff, then. Like, thank you so much. I've never made a drink quite like this before. I can't even imagine what you call it. My friends call it, like, the why bother, but it sure doesn't stop me from loving it. <laughs> Nice talking with you. Adios. I am so sorry about that. Anyway, where was I? All right, so you won't believe what happened to me on Sunday. So, like, you know how I've been trying to learn more about Jesus and God and stuff? Well, ever since I got into it, my friend Brittany has been begging me to go to her church. It's that big building on Michigan Street... It's got, like, a stage and a praise band. I mean, it's got, like, a ton of people, so the pastor must be pretty cool, right? Well, the sermon starts. I've got my Bible, my notebook, my pocket catechism, and my flower pen. All ready to hear about God. And what does he talk about? A bird. This guy went on some 20-minute bunny trail about a bluebird that landed on his windowsill. And I'm just sitting there like, what about Jesus? I mean, they had just had a laser light show about how much they loved him. Um, Hold that thought. I have to use the little girl's room. I'll be back in a sec. So Jeff said, wrecked him, wrecked him, you practically killed him. <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. I've accidentally dumped my white bother all over you. Your outfit is totally ruined. Here, let me use these only slightly absorbent napkins to wipe it up for you. All right, use that. A little bit there. And, uh, there. That seems to have gotten most, most of it. Here's my business card if the stains don't come out. I happen to own and run a dry cleaner's just down the road. Anyway, gotta run. Please take my card. As I was saying, 
don't even think these people realize what Jesus did. Let me explain this to you. So, first of all, I'm like a sinner. And I need forgiveness, right? So God was like, I'm going to send my son. So Jesus came and he got on the cross and everybody's sins were forgiven. And we were all like, cool. So when I go to church, I want to hear about Jesus. But for some reason, these people don't even talk about Jesus. You know, if you think about it, the church is like totally God's house. So Jesus invited all of us to his forgiveness party, and we all shut up and said that we loved him, and then we completely ignore him. That is so rude. Not only is it rude to God, but it's a total ripoff for me. I want to hear about how my sins are forgiven. But instead, these people are like, let me tell you my life story. Um, excuse you. You think that your birds are more important than God? That is so rude. Honey, what happened to your shirt? Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith uh, could cause you to think that uh, PBS and History Channel documentaries are often hit pieces against Christ. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of today's debunking of the uh, last days of Jesus documentary. Here we go. Now, the question then comes up, when was this written? Well, after. After what? After 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. At, well, after, after the events. So clearly this was written after the historical events that are recorded in it. But how long after? How long? Well, Mary's still alive. So Mary's still alive. Yeah. Can't be that long. Yeah, and people did not live that, that long back then. So Mary's still alive. The Apostle Paul, what is his connection with Luke? Please open to Acts 16. Acts 16. I want to show you something. Starting at verse 11. Listen to this narrative. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Do you have a mouse in your pocket? What's this we stuff? Why is Luke, who is the author of Acts, saying we, we, we? And it's not because of the three little piggies or any of that kind of stuff. Why is he saying we? Uh huh. He. You know who was there? Luke was. This is one of those famous sections of the book of Acts known as the we sections or the we portions. And the reason why they're called the we portions is because they're written in first person plural. And Luke is saying, you know who saw this? Me. I saw it and we were there and this is what we did. One of the other famous we sections of the book of Acts is found near the end when Paul is on the ship heading towards Rome. Because remember, he's been arrested. He's heading towards Rome. He's, been, he's appealing to Caesar. And it talks about the great storm that came up. And it talks about how we were tossed to and fro and, and the wa- waves came over and how we were shipwrecked and all this kind of stuff. What does that tell you? Who was there with Paul during these events? Mary. Fail. <laughs> Luke, right. Okay, now, kind of put this together here. Acts is part two of Luke and Acts. Where does Acts end? What's going on when we get to the end of Acts? It's, yes, it's before maps. But at the end of Acts, does it have this tidy little ending? And Paul and Peter and John lived happily ever after. No, it doesn't. In fact, Acts is one of these works where it kind of ends abruptly in chapter 28. And where's Paul when this takes place? Under house arrest in Rome. What year was that? Answer is 60 A.D. Paul's first time in prison in Rome is in 60 A.D. When was Jesus crucified, died, buried, raised from the dead? 33. 
So at the very latest, the oldest that Acts can be is it was finished abruptly, and we don't know why it ends so abruptly, in 60 AD. That's the oldest it can be. What does that make the Gospel of Luke? How old is that? Now let me give you another text of Scripture. This will help us out a little bit here. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read this out for you. See if this helps. I would remind you, brothers, this is Paul writing, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul, writing to the church of Corinth in the year, and liberal scholars agree with this, by the way. 1 Corinthians was written between 50 and 52 A.D. That's your range. 50 and 52 A.D. How many years after the death of Christ is this? 20-something years. Yeah, about 20 straight up. So 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried on the th- and that he was raised again on the third day, in accordance with what? Which scriptures say that Jesus Christ died and rose again on the third day? The Gospels. Uh-huh. Because Paul, in 50 A.D., is already making reference to scriptures, not scripture, scriptures, that reference Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day. Which Old Testament texts tell us that? No prophecies say it that clear. And yet, by 50 AD, Paul is referencing a creed, because that's really an early creed, that says that Jesus died, was buried, raised again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This sounds to me like the Apostle Paul was working with one of those Gospels that wasn't written. One of those non-existent eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Strange, isn't it? So the Apostle Paul already in 50 AD is referencing scriptures that explicitly talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We know that Paul was intimately associated with Luke, the author of Luke in Acts. Because Luke was along for the journey in parts of Acts. So if they're right, these weren't written until way later and not by eyewitnesses, then (laughs) everything doesn't make sense. When did Luke write Luke? And when did Luke write Acts? And clearly the internal evidence says it was written by talking to eyewitnesses and it had to have been written early because it ends so abruptly. So it takes more faith to believe their theory that this isn't eyewitness testimony than it is to believe that it is, because the document says that it is. And, there were professors. Right, there are smart people. Yeah. Right. The music in the exactly. Exactly. It was very ominous. You know? I need a soundtrack. That's my problem. 
<laughs> and I need a British accent. That's what I need. But you can see how this works. All right. Now, I'm going to show you some more evidence. And I, this one's a little bit more precise. But there's a book that is out there, and you can get it. The name of the book is Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It is written by Cambridge scholar Richard Balcom. B-A-U-K-A-M. Richard Balcom. And this is an amazing book. And what I'm going to be showing to you is, again, looking internally within the the documents themselves to see if this can make sense. Because I I want you to think about this. So 70 years after Jesus walked the earth, I'm going to write a story about Jesus. This This is what it's coming down to. These are the days before Google. There is no internet. Libraries are a bit sketchy at this point. We don't have all of the documents that we have now in city halls and places like that. I want you to consider this. Now, where am I writing from is going to be, going to be like another question that comes up. Now, I don't know if you guys have figured this out, but I am not a local here. Now, I, I would ask you locals, do you think I could pull it off if I were to really like try to embed myself among the locals to make it look like I'm a local? Could I really pull it off? No, you can't speak Polish names. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> Enough from you. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I'm having difficulty with the Polish names. How about, how about my knowledge of the geography of this area? No. In fact, or, or my wife. Oh, yeah, that's right. We get lost very quickly. I couldn't tell you where Crookston is, Thief River Falls. Uh, uh, oh, man. With, if, without the internet, I'm gone. There's just like no way. Now, I want you to consider this. Back in the day, before there was Google Earth and Google Maps and stuff like this, if people knew about cities in a particular region, what types of cities would they know about? Big ones, capital cities. So, you know, so you could realistically say, I know about Grand Forks, okay? But somebody who's not from here would probably have never heard of Alvarado. They wouldn't know where Warren is or some of these, you know, Macintosh or, you know, Eskin or places like this. What you just said. Yeah. <laughs> You're making my point. Thank you. <laughs> Erskine. Yeah, see, see what I'm saying? Okay. No, notice how easy it is for me to screw this up if I don't really have local knowledge. So I really couldn't pull this off. There's like no way. Now, I want you to consider then that basically what these people are saying is that with these, the, the Gospels are not eyewitness accounts. But they got all of the minutia right in their gospel accounts when it comes to like the little details. Now, as you're reading through the gospels, you'll see things in the gospels like the list of names of the disciples. And some of the guys have, well, he's James, the son of Alphaeus. Why does it say James, the son of Alphaeus? But then you get to Thaddeus. It just says Thaddeus. Why is that? Or then you get to Simon, and then you have to make a distinction. Well, Simon the Zealot, and then you got Simon Peter. Why are you making distinctions like this? That's part of it. Then you have details in the Gospels like Emmaus is a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. That's local knowledge. And Emmaus, we're not even sure where that is today. Did you know that? 
We're not even sure where Emmaus is. But back then, we have the name of kind of an obscure, tiny little village, and we know exactly how long it takes to get there from Jerusalem. How about Bethsaida? How about some of these lesser-known towns? And you'll notice that we get a lot of minutia, names of obscure villages and stuff like that, and we also get weather information, and we get information regarding you know, like plant cycles and stuff like that, mentions of green grass at particular times of the year and things like this. All of this is data that you would expect from somebody who is writing an eyewitness account. If I were writing a legend 70 years later, I would not have access to this minutia detail. Does that make sense? And here's the fun part. This minutia detail is in every single gospel. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke, and in John. And the other thing I can tell you as somebody who spends a lot of time translating, and I know both Greek and Hebrew, it's hilarious when you're reading some of the Gospels. And the reason why is you sit there and go, whoever wrote this is a Jew. There's just like no way around it because there's Jewish idioms and phrases that have literally been just smuggled into the Greek text without any attempt of trying to make it Greek. It's like, there's like this Hebrew thing here and it's like, Oh my gosh, whoever wrote this totally was a Jew. There's no way around it. It's just chock full of Hebraisms, which is what you would expect because who are Jesus' disciples? Jews. Now, I want to talk a little bit about popular personal names. Now, I know we've all seen this, right? A woman gets married and her and her husband announce sometime later, we're pregnant. And everyone's so excited, you know. Do I get a pink booty or a blue booty? What do I get? I don't know, right? You know, and then they share the ultrasound pictures on Facebook, and everyone's just, ooh, this is the best thing ever, right? And what does the mom do? She goes to the store, and she buys a baby name book so that she can look through the most popular baby names so she can begin to figure out, Am I going to call her Annabelle or am I going to call him Caleb? You know, things like this. And, you know, and I'm kind of overdramatizing, but you get the idea. My wife and I went through this three times. Now, I assure you that the names that were most popular when my children were born are not the names that are most popular now. That's an important little phenomenon. In fact... If we go back in time, in the 1970s, the most popular male name was Michael. The, least, uh, the most popular female, Jennifer. Michael stayed at the top all the way through the 80s and 90s, and, but it switched from Jennifer to Jessica, Jessica again in the 90s, and then in the 2000s, it switched to Jacob and Emily. Most popular names. Okay, and why am I saying this? Well... We have an interesting archaeological phenomenon that happened at the time of Jesus and in no other time in Israel's history. Let me explain. While Jesus was growing up, what was being constructed and built and worked on? The temple. Herod's temple. This was a multi-decades-long building project. And that required them to quarry tons and tons of stones, limestone and you know other types of stones for this particular construction project. And you know what? A lot of stones didn't make the cut. 
they didn't make it to be part of the temple. And what happened to those stones? Here's the answer. And this is a very unique thing about Jesus' time. The stones that didn't make the cut, had they were literally taken and then they were bored out so that they became boxes. And these boxes looked like stones in the temple. They became known as ossuaries. Otherwise, you can call them a bone box. And so the burial practices at the time of Jesus, while the second temple was still being built, the second temple Judaism is what this is called for century, what they would do is when somebody died, they would take their body, put it on a slab in a cave or something like that, roll a stone over it, and one year to the day that they died, they would open up the tomb, and the only thing left would be bones. They would gather up the bones, put them into the ossuary, write their name on the outside of it, and then put a lid on it and keep it in the family tomb. When the next person died, same procedure, let their body decompose one year later, collect the bones, put it in the bone box, add their name to the ossuary. This was a burial practice that was only being practiced at the time of Christ. Keep that in mind. So guess what they've found in Jerusalem? A ton of them. No, more like tons and tons and tons. Hundreds and thousands of ossuaries. And what do those ossuaries have on them? Names. And so we have literally a list of all of the most popular names of men and women from the exact time that Jesus was alive. Now, let's, we're going to get there. So let's talk, we'll kind of talk about how this all works. So the question is, did the gospel writers get the names right and in the right proportions? Because we have hard data on this. So I'm going to kind of fast forward. The, the lady who did all of this work and put the database together on this, her name is Tal Alon. She's an Israeli-born historian, notably of women's history and Judaism and lexicography. She's currently a professor of Jewish studies at Freie University in Berlin, and she's the author of Lexicon of Jewish Names in Late Antiquity. And you're sitting there going, why on earth would somebody want to put something that boring together? I thank God for people like this. <laughs> and the person who has summarized her work, again, Richard Balcom, B-A-U-C-K-H-A-M, Balcom. This is the guy who wrote Jesus and the, and the Eyewitnesses. And here's the data. Most popular Jewish names, Palestinian Jews, 330 B.C. to 200 A.D., and so this is this is a different list altogether. You know, so we've got different we got different. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls give us information. The ossuaries give us information. Josephus gives us information. The New Testament gives us information. And all of these are data points if you're into those kinds of things. But top Jewish names in Israel at the time of Jesus are Simon and Joseph. When we look at the Gospel accounts and the Book of Acts. So 15% of the general population of Israel using Tal Alon's data, they had the names either Simon or Joseph in the book of Acts and the Gospels, 18.2. It's like within the range of, uh, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about. Top nine men's names, 41%, 0.5% Israel. We are right in the same data. When you just compare within the margin of error, two top women's names were Mary and Salome. This one's a little bit off. We have a lo- less, less women's names in the Gospels. Top nine women name, again, we're still right in the ballpark. We're seeing these in the right proportions. So when you look at the rank 
most popular name, Simon. After that, Joseph, Lazarus, Judas, John, Jesus, Ananias, Jonathan, Matthew, Manan, and James. That's your kind of like your rank right there in the top. And here's the thing. Did people have last names then? No. So if you had a child and you named him Joseph, he's eight years old, he's playing outside with his friends, it's time for dinner. Joseph, come time to eat. Five kids come running. <laughs> no, 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 no. I meant Joseph ben Yehuda. You know, you have, to, you have to make a distinguish. And by the way, that's the way you did it back then. You had to use what's called disambiguation. This is what we call it today. And so when we look at the, the list of names of disciples... Let's uh, take a look at a, a, at a list in the Gospels. And I want to go to Matthew. I think I'm in chapter 10. Yes. Watch this list. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Now, knowing who the most popular names are, there's certain names we would expect if they show up in this list, they're going to require disambiguation. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Who is called Peter is disambiguation. Why? What's one of the most popular names at the time? The most popular name, Simon. He has disambiguation regarding who he is. Who is called Peter? Andrew, his brother. Is Andrew one of those popular names? Nope. No disambiguation, just Andrew. James, the son of Zebedee. There's disambiguation. Is James one of the most popular names? Yep. It is. Okay, so you're kind of seeing how this goes. If you have a popular name, you get disambiguation. If you have an unpopular name, no need for it. John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and here's Matthew, the tax collector. Disambiguation? Okay, I wonder if Matthew's a popular name here. Let's see. Yes, it is. It's in the top ten. You see how that works? Wait, in our uh-huh. Like, that's why you get so many Andersons, Nelsons, Carlsons. Uh-huh. Because uh, the boys, you know, would be like the son of whoever. Uh-huh. And the girls would be the daughter. So, like, back in the old days, my last, my maiden last name would have been Clifford Dock. Mm, okay. The daughter of Clifford. Right. And yeah. My brother's last name would have been Cliffordson. Cliffordson. Okay. Uh, Interesting. The Irish, yeah. Uh, my family's true last name is McLaurin, which Nick is Nick or Mac is David's son. Lauren. Hmm. All right. So we see how this is working. James, the son of Alphaeus. Is James a popular name or not? Of course it is. How do you know? It's got disambiguation. Now. By way of comparison, is Judea the only place where Jews lived? No. Just down the highway in Egypt, we also have data regarding the most popular names of Jews who were living in Egypt. And they are Eliezer, Sabbateus, Joseph, Dosotheus, Papus, Ptolemaeus, and Samuel. 
Totally different group, right? Now, here's the question I have. How is it that non-eyewitnesses writing from God knows where at a time far removed from when these took place, how did they get this right? Oh, they had a vision. Yes. I told you, Elvis, mothership, there's beaming going on. You see what I'm saying? It takes more faith to believe that the Gospels are not eyewitness accounts of Christ than it does to believe that they are. And you know why I believe they are? Because they say they are. (laughs) And the church, this is the fun part, the church knew exactly who wrote them and the earliest Christians told us who wrote them. It's like, this is not rocket science. But isn't it also because it's been stated so many times that the Bible has nothing to do with history? Oh, yeah. So it all works together. And they're saying that, you know, it couldn't have happened the way it said because it was so many times. Because they don't want, nobody wants, people don't want to believe that the Bible is of course. And you know why? Because they're dead in trespasses and sins and they're hostile towards God. I mean, I want you to consider this. If, the, if I were to say as a pagan, the Gospels, all right, they're true. Jesus is who he claimed to be. What does that mean for my life? <laughs> yeah. Look out. Look out. Right? But consider then the claims. Who does Jesus claim to be? None other than God in human flesh. And not just any God, the God of the Jews of the Old Testament in human flesh. And what's his claim on us? He's our creator. And what does he come to do? To die for our sins. What is he telling us to do? Repent and be forgiven. What if we persist in sin and unbelief? There's this thing called the lake of fire. You don't want to go there. It's a very warm, forever vacation spot, right? And I want you to consider this. What does this have to do then with how I'm living my life? Right? We'll just let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Right? What do you have to say about the books that Oh, yes, 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 yes. I actually have some data on those. Hang on a second. Let me find this. The, the, the documents that you are talking about, and here's how the other argument goes. See, the, here's how the liberal scholars say. We have found an entire collection of other Gospels. Did you know this? They were found in Egypt in the Nag Hammadi Library, like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary. These are other Gospels. And do you know why they were not permitted into the Bible? Why? Because those very ornery and mean-spirited Orthodox Christians, the ones who said there's a such thing as heresy, they wouldn't permit those in because it didn't fit with their preconceived notions about Jesus. So, we have more information about Jesus than they do because they're narrow-minded bigots. That's the reason why they did. And so what do we do with these other Gospels? Well, the question that comes up is what are they? That's really the question. And are, do they give us reliable data? 
as it relates to eyewitness testimony. And so I actually have some data on this. So the conclusion then, the only way the four Gospels got all of this minutiae data right is because it contains high-quality eyewitness testimony. Now, when we compare the apocryphal Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, you look at the names that they give. So we talked about the most popular names we know. Well, according to the apocryphal Gospels, here we have a list of names. Didymus, Judas, Thomas, James the Just, and Simon Peter. Those are the only names that we have. And there's no minutia data regarding geography, villages, or anything like that. Gospel of Mary, you have the names of the Savior, Peter, Mary, Andrew, and Levi. Does this sound like a list composed of eyewitness accounts? Gospel of Judas, we have Judas and Jesus. And then we have the heavenly beings, Barbello, Sophia, Nebro, Yaldabaoth, Saklos, Seth. I can't even pronounce some of these. These are aliens, by the way. Yeah, I'm not making that up. These are aliens. These are extraterrestrial beings that um, make an appearance in the Gospel of Judas. Does this sound like eyewitness testimony to you based upon the historical data? No. And it gets worse regarding like, let me find that other piece of data because there's, there's a little bit more. It's only the Gospels that actually have a list of names that fit with the data that we know from that time period. Regarding the geographic information... In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are the names of the different places that are listed. Jerusalem, Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethsaida, Jericho, Sidon, Tyre, and then smaller places, and Neon, Arimathea, Bethpage, Caesarea, Philippi, Cana, Chorazin, Dalmunatha, Emmaus, Ephraim, uh, Magadan, Nain, Salem, and Sychar. And some of these are really obscure, small places. This is the geographic information we get in the, in the four Gospels. When you compare the other Gospels that you were told about, Gospel of Philip, it names Jerusalem and Nazareth. Um, the Gospels of Peter, the Savior, one town each and Jerusalem. And then the second and third gospel, second and third century Gospels don't even give us the names of any places at all. So here's the idea. The claim of the person who says, oh, these Gnostic Gospels, they give us, a, they give us more data regarding Jesus. No, they don't. There's nothing internally within them that would make us say this is a historical eyewitness account that gives us data regarding Jesus. In fact, my daughter, Christina, describes them as really bad fan fictions. So basically it would be like the difference between um, a, a family history story and a myth. The, yeah, these are totally myth. This, it's, it's, there's like nothing... There's like no eyewitness historical data at all that we can say. And there's no reason in these documents internally to believe that they're giving us a, a fuller picture of Jesus. I mean, it would be like me saying, listen, let me tell you about the love story between George Washington and Abraham Lincoln's daughter. Man, that was a hot romance. <laughs> you know, you, know, you might get away with that today. I mean, because I mean, how many hundreds of years after the fact? But I mean, that's the level we're talking about. Yeah, many of these Gnostic Gospels are 2nd and 3rd century. So that puts them two, 300 years after Christ. Yeah. No, no, we're not. No, this is, this is not that body of work that the uh, Roman Catholics are, are, are point back to. That body of work, the Apocrypha, is, is our uh, documents written, written between the intertestamental periods. 
between the Old and the New Testament, like First and Second Maccabees. Um, you have uh, a, a wider account regarding Daniel, and there's other things like that in the Apocrypha, but that's not what's in question here. That's not what's in question here. We're talking about after Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and Christianity has gotten going, um, then you have this other body of works. And by the way, the church fathers were fully aware of the apocryphal gospels. They were fully aware of them, and they straight up repudiated them. In fact, we knew of their existence long before they were found because some of the church fathers took time to extensively write against the heresy of Gnosticism and quoted from them and told their stories extensively and made it clear this is to be rejected because this is not historically true at all. And so what happens is, is that the liberal comes along and they create an alternative narrative. And so the alternative narrative is you have these really, really evil, wicked, politically incorrect, narrow-minded bigots and haters. And they suppressed these loving, kind Gnostic communities in their Jesus tradition. It's just nonsense. It's just utter nonsense. And the core of this is designed to create doubt in your mind that the Gospels are telling us the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And that's really, this is all, all these people traffic in is doubt. And that's exactly what the devil always traffics in. You can trust your Bible. You can trust the New Testament. The historical narratives that we have in the Gospels, it is impeccable. And they give us valid, historically accurate eyewitness accounts of the life, teaching, miracles, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. So don't let these people shake you up because they're the ones who cannot stand up to real scrutiny. And it doesn't matter how many PhDs behind their name or if they teach at really smart institutions. It's just, that's nonsense. Yeah, or dramatic music. All right, we'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.